Hi, this is Angela Eureka Smith, author of Tortured Willows Poetry Collection, along with Christina Singh, Lee Murray, and Genevieve Flynn, and Bittersweets, and publisher of Space and Time Magazine. And you are listening to the HP Lovecast podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode 53 of the HP Lovecast podcast. I'm Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with a special emphasis on horror, fantasy, and spy genres. And I'm Nicholas Dyack. I'm a pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, industrial music, horror studies, and I'm the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Uh, Michelle and I also co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarland. In today's episode, we'll be discussing Douglas Wynn's collection, Something in the Water, and other stories, published by Weird House Press earlier this year. We've selected two short stories to discuss, The Enigma Signal and Tracking the Black Book. We'll start a discussion with a plot synopsis of The Enigma Signal. Marcus is a guitarist who is part of a trio of musicians playing aboard the Ortelius, an icebreaker ship on an expedition to the Arctic to observe and document a strange object known as the Enigma. The story opens with Marcus and his bandmate, drummer Ricky, engaged in a philosophical discussion about being part of something bigger than oneself. Marcus observes the Enigma with several artists who are sketching what they see since the Enigma blocks modern technological equipment. Marcus has an otherworldly experience as he plays his guitar until his amp blows out. As Marcus reflects on the prior night's experience, Joe, another uh, person on the expedition, sees sounds as colors. So he comes to chat to Marcus about his, ex his performance and to see if Marcus will play the music again. When Marcus does so, it taps into and awakens a cosmic horror that invades and consumes individuals into a black, oozy mass. Marcus is faced with being assimilated or jumped to his death. Nick, what'd you think of the story? The story ruled. <laughs> <laughs> but both stories are awesome, and we definitely got to dig more into uh, uh, the collection here. And this particular story, I... I don't know too much of Wynn's writing, but apparently he has kind of his own Lovecraftian universe called the Spectrophiles. Uh, just by the name of it makes me think of the Delta Green stuff. But this is just a short story that takes place like in his alternate world where it sounds like mountains of madness had occurred. So there's big structure at the South Pole. There's now something at the North Pole and all this other weird stuff's going on in the world. And it's it's unique, but it's also fun. This is a even though it's it's a sad ending, I feel bad for it. It's still a a, a fun and innovative story that I think plays with normal cosmic horror tropes. Uh, this one and when we talk about the tracking of the black book, that Wynn has this ability to take kind of just normal Lovecraftian tropes and kind of turn them around and do something new with them. 
and I'll bring up what that stuff is here in a second. But so, what were your uh, initial thoughts of the story? Um, I actually really enjoyed this story. Um, I think it it connected for me because of the feeling of basically kind of immersing oneself in the creative process. And um, as a person who used to compose music and kind of, you know, get lost in, you know, developing notes and and taking a path um, and kind of being open to that journey uh, really did resonate for me with this story. Um, I also feel that it's kind of at a, a good point because we've had a couple of musical discussions um, when we talked about the uh, silence of Erica Zahn and then when we talked with the uh, fellows from uh, North Umbra. So I feel like this is kind of a continuation of that discussion while also kind of looking at, you know, the original HP Love uh, Craft uh, source material, which is uh, the music of Eric Zahn. You know, you bring up silence of Eric Zahn and I, I, I gotta bring that up too because I couldn't help but think of that episode, which uh, folks, we talked about that maybe two, three months ago, fairly recently. Look at our archive. You'll see it there. Um, that was our music month. May music month. That's what it was. And just how... I hate to be disparaging. I don't like to talk ill, but we already did that episode. How, like, kind of eh that story was, especially now compared to reading Douglas Wins. Uh, the funny thing is, is... Um, the silence of Erica Zahn, the writer, James Wade, when he's not writing about dolphin sex, uh, he was a musician. And we read that, and we were kind of shocked at, like, the silence of Erica Zahn was very music-centric. It's about a an acid rock band in the 60s, and just, we weren't really sold on, like, the descriptions of the music and the singing and what's going on. Well, um, uh, Douglas Wynn, he's also a musician. Uh, oh, I didn't realize that he was as well. Oh yeah, I, I think in his bio he like he went to school to do music and he's been in bands and stuff. So, you know, he's coming from the James Wade uh, type of uh, school of he's a musician, uh, but he's a much better writer than James Wade because um, I, I actually it, his music, uh, the both uh, hearing of it and the playing of it are way more descriptive than. Uh, Silence of Erica Zahn. And in fact, I, I want to do a compare and contrast real quick. So, so here's a sentence from The Silence of Erica Zahn. The group came on, and Erica sang a few loud but forgettable numbers. The acid rock arrangements were in that year, and if you kept up to date, you could tell just where the band were snatching its charts. It, it, it's, it's a nothing sentence. I don't really get too much from it. The, the guy won't even list other bands of that era to compare him to. He just says, you just have to go back in time and look at the charts and maybe it's the doors or something. It, it's And the whole story is like that. It's like they go on, they're loud, the strobe lights are weird, they don't know where the sound is coming from and yeah, it done better. Now, I'm going to compare that to what uh, Douglas has written. Uh, page 128. And, and they're both kind of accomplishing the same thing. Otherworldly music coming out of weird sources. Um, so, blah, 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 blah. Uh, here we go. Um, Maybe that's all what improv is. A few lines out of context, tentatively alighting on suggestive shape, then maybe becoming something, taking on detail, themes, and emotion if it doesn't just fall apart. I thought I knew where the solo was going. It was a familiar tune for our trio, and I had a few licks I like to touch on and weave together in the section. The auto-wah guitar is similar to a trumpet with a plunger mute, 
Both sounds mimic human vocal tones. I used it a lot with the jazz trio, but that night it sounded different. I was leaning in toward the speaker grill of my Fender Twin, eyes closed, fingers finding the winding path around the chord structures, like ivy climbing bricks, when I heard an overtone harmonizing with my guitar. I shot a look at Paul to see if he was playing it. Maybe he split the keyboard into two sounds, piano and the bass, and some kind of synth tone in the treble register, but his right hand was poised over the keys giving me space. Um, and then other sequences continue like that. Aside from it being a little longer than the Silence of Erica Zahn script, I, I can see what's going on here. I actually see the band. I see what they're doing. And even though I'm not a musician, um, I know enough to say, okay, yeah, he's got his hands up here. He's doing things. I know what a wah pedal is. I, I can see the setup. Compare that to James Wade's. Oh, they went up there and played Asic Rock and came down. It's boring. Mm -hmm. So just a big difference in the handling of... of writing about music, especially in a Lovecraftian story, much more descriptive in Wynne's story, for sure. Well, and I, uh, I, I totally agree. Um, that was one of the, the points that I had down, is that I felt like the musical performance scene is so well-written that it really does create that otherworldly, kind of that tribal music for the reader. And, and you feel like you've been pulled in to that moment in time and I think it part of it I think helps with the fact that when gives us more to hang our hat on as a reader so that we have you know probably most most of us have been at a concert and we kind of have an idea even if we don't know specifically the name of equipment we we've seen this stuff we kind of we kind of know how it sounds so we really are able as readers to connect more intimately uh, I also think that that's helped by the fact that this is written in a first-person perspective. So instead of being, um, you know, a, th a third person removed in uh, Wade's story, we're front and center. We're right there with Marcus. We we are right in his head as he is is experiencing this kind of cosmic. Uh, moment that he doesn't understand and he's just holding on and going with the ride. I would say out of any sort of things to write about, describing music is probably one of the hardest things to do because there isn't a visual component to music. Although I say that with a sense of irony because one of the characters in the story has cro chromo... what was it called? Uh, it is uh, chrome... Chromesthesia. Yeah, so he can actually see sound. So that notwithstanding, average reader, you know, music is hard to convey, I think, just because it is, how do you describe, without getting too technical of, oh, I listened and it was, you know, sharp and flat and, see, I, I can't even wing it because I don't know anything mm -hmm. about it. Um, so, but I think Wynne pulls it off, uh, especially the main character. He's a musician. It's important to him. It's important to the story. Sound is very important to the story. And I think it takes a very certain type of technical acumen to pull that off. And this story definitely does compared to other stories we've read, such as The Silence of Erica Zahn, which f falters incredibly. Yeah, and it's also a different kind of story. It's, it's a period piece. Um, you know, the acid music of the 60s is somewhat known, but then there's also a lot of nuances that I think have been lost over the decades. So I think for this story, it's, it's much more connectable because 
the music in a way is left a bit more vague to allow the the reader to kind of interject well, I even think they're doing can, jazz they're they're doing jazz but i mean jazz can be kind of at your own interpretation well, I so. think we've all seen the scene in a variety of movies. You go mm-hmm. to the nice restaurant or their boat, and you've got that the jazz band in the corner that's set in the ambient. So it's definitely more related to, that's for sure. Now, you mentioned about uh, playing with the tropes, so why don't we go to... Uh, so I think one of the biggest tropes it plays with is uh, describing the undescribable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, that's one of the things that goes back to, you know, Lovecraft's story is, you know, the characters only get that glimpse, you know, the blah, 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 under the door, or they turn around and see the horror real quick, and they can't even describe it. I think this takes it to a different level, um, because there is, well, one, you see the Shoggoths at the end. We know what Shoggoths are. Everyone's seen Shoggoths. We've seen enough comics. That's not our undescribable horror here. Um, so, and that's fine. I, in fact, it's to me the Shoggoths remind me of Blob '88. So I'm like, yeah, that's cool stuff. But no, it's the um, the actual Enigma structure, where you know their technology can't take pictures of it, and depending on who you are, you see different things for it. So, you know, mm-hmm. one person can see A, another person can see B. And the fact that the solution to this is, let's round up a whole bunch of artists to interpret this strange phenomenon for us. And I think that's neat for, for two things. One, it adds this different type of how do you translate the undescribable into something describable, especially something that's different for everyone. And two, I think it's kind of a throwback to Call of Cthulhu, where it's in these stories where it's the artisans that can make sense of the otherworldly stuff. In Call of Cthulhu, it's that that time, uh, those few weeks where the world, you know, Cthulhu's coming up or something, and all the artisans have wicked, crazy dreams, and that's where you get, like, the one artist who makes the bass relief with Cthulhu. It's like, only they are able to articulate and manifest uh, the unknown, the the stuff that we can't see or comprehend. And I, I believe the Enigma Code does that in a very Lovecraftian way that's kind of old school, but new as well. It's describe it's trying to translate this unseeable or uncomprehendable thing. And I think that's neat. I just like the idea of this military boat, all these artists lined up, you know, cartoonists, illustrators, and whatnot. All those folks that only concentrated on their STEM degrees and business degrees, dang it, that liberal arts degree came in handy, man. <laughs> um and I like that. I think it was a nice twist that accomplishes what it needed to do with a classic trope but in a different way yeah i would agree i like that it doesn't come down to not to disparage against academics since we are uh in that realm but it is nice to read a story that doesn't depend on a character that's in academics to kind of try to unravel and ends up being kind of sucked in uh, because they're seeking knowledge. Here, Here's basically, you know, someone we can identify as an average person, uh, you know, who happens to be a musician. He's probably a bit more sensitive, like artists and writers and others, um, to the creative process, and therefore they tend to be a bit more open and... Uh, welcoming different experiences and so i think that works well with this story well, well go, going off that because what you're saying is actually a really important thing uh of 
something something we see in movies a lot of the time, and it's hard to, I don't know, reconcile this with our everyday lives, but how do you get an average Joe involved in the something bigger than they are? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, usually, you know, in speculative fiction stories and sci-fi stories and whatnot, you know, the main characters are, you know, the amateur detective that's doing experiments, or, you know, the Lovecraft stuff, it's someone, a bookish guy that's diving into archives, or it's a military person, a scientist person, someone with some uh, very specialized skills that uh, are kind of front and center. So how do you get Joe Schmo part of that? Um when we're kind of, you know, living our everyday lives. And, and in this story, we have that. It's our jazz musician, Marcus. Uh, for all purposes, you know, it's all by accident with him. It just, he so happens to be at the wrong right place at the wrong right time with his amp tuned at the right wrong frequency or whatever that mm-hmm. he picks up that signal and it just inadvertently kind of catapults him into this that you know it is by happen chance that you know he's sucked in i mean his fate's going to be the same regardless someone eventually is going to crack the enigma code here and you know all the shoggoths are going to come out anyway it just happens to be be him but i think it's just a nice way to incorporate an average person that we can relate to in these fantastic stories they're they're not extraordinary characters with you know crazy backgrounds rich families lots of knowledge and library at their disposal and i like that because it makes it a little bit more relatable uh to us to latch onto them yeah and if i remember correctly i think there's a little bit of a foreshadowing uh when marcus uh they finish up a performance, and he goes out on the deck, and I think he's, you know, smoking a cigarette or something, and he's looking at this Enigma signal thing, and, you know, he's at first sees it as a, like a, a tree with Spanish moss. It's, it's uh, drooping over, and then it seems to kind of morph into more of a, like, telescope type of something and as he's walking and kind of looking at what the artists are rendering uh or yeah sketching out they all kind of seem to come into tune for a moment and they all see the same thing which i thought was kind of a neat foreshadowing that marcus seems to have some sort of key in to the enigma Mm -hmm. like he is the key well i I think it's everyone can see it they all see it differently but how do you how do you convey that, you know? Uh, so that's why the artists are so important that they can, you know, help, you know, manifest this weird thing. But yeah, it just so happens, you know, it's sitting there broadcasting signals and whatnot, and there he is with his amp. Uh, you know, it, it makes me think of. I'm gonna butcher this badly, but do you remember the movie Coffee and Cigarettes? Oh, long, long time ago. <laughs> it's a great film, but I, I think I think it's the segment with uh, uh uh, the white stripes and he makes like a Turing machine or some sort of big apparatus and he says something like the, the world is a giant conductor of resonance or something that you know the idea you can pick up things and also I think of um oh man I, I'm reaching real far back here I think it's uh, a Douglas Adams Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when the uh, <laughs> the construction fleet arrives to bulldoze the earth but, it, you know, it broadcasts, like, hey, everyone on Earth, we're about to bulldoze you. But it says things like all the TVs and all the radios and anything that has resonance is broadcasting all this. And, you know, I think that that's kind of all that similar stuff is sort of going on here. It just so happens 
uh, our jazz player <laughs> happened to be, again, right place, wrong time, or wrong place, right time, with his gear and whatnot to pick it up and go, oh, yeah, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it, yeah, he, his timing is unfortunate, um, and we feel, feel kind of bad about, uh, for Marcus, um, should we kind of move into characters and talk about Marcus a little bit? Uh, yeah, it's actually, I, I got one thing to say on setting. Oh, sure. Um, I like the setting of this. There's something neat about Antarctic and Arctic settings. Uh, you don't see enough movies there or stories that take place there, partly because they're inaccessible, so how can you get there to film them? But, you know, you read Mountains of Madness and you see some of the comic books that takes place there, like, uh... Uh, Gautanabis, which we read about and whatnot. And some of the most classic uh, stories come from, you know, uh, um, John Carpenter's The Thing, for instance. Um, I'm reminded of uh, a movie you got me for my birthday a long time ago from Criterion, uh, The Atomic Submarine, which uh, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. I think that's a great movie. It's a schlocky 50s movie that has more in common with atomic horror than cosmic horror, but the sub is at the, the North Pole traveling around it and encounters a UFO that has an alien in it. Um, yeah, it's a great setting. Um, on the subject of Marcus, the characters and setting, there's this cringy scene, and I've seen it in a couple other movies. Uh, if you remember the movie Whiteout, I think that has Kate Beckinsale. Uh-huh, yes. Uh, I, I know exactly what scene you're talking oh, about. Man. I cringe. Oh, yeah, she goes to open it. She, she's trapped outside in Antarctica. She's like a cop, and she goes to open a door, and her hand gets stuck to the door handle, and she rips it off, and it just takes she her... She rips her hand yeah. off the door handle. Yeah, <laughs> it takes all the skin off of her hand hand and it causes two of her fingers to become like frostbit that they're just basically destroyed that a doctor later has to cut them off and so when i was uh reading towards the end of the story when marcus which who i imagine he's barely in his pajamas i think he's just got a shirt boxers i i don't even remember if he has shoes on because i was thinking of that. i might have skipped over that scene because if he's walking out there barefoot he's screwed but regardless you know he's running up the stairs he puts his hand on the railing and rips his hand off, and it takes the skin off with it. And, you know, you could talk about Shoggoths eating people, end of the world, all this other stuff. I could take it. I could take that horror. It's that, oh, man, pulling the hand off. Of the, oh, because I could, I could feel it. I could see it. I've seen it in other movies. No, 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 no. Tell me how you really feel. Oh, man, that, that cringing i mean i mean kudos to you when you you took like just you know a one sentence throwaway to say it's cold out there and it's like <laughs> the scariest cringing uh part we're body horror <laughs> it's body horror i tell you and that whole story um so I, I dug it i dug the attention to detail but ooh, um yeah so the setting you know that you can do a lot with nothing what i mean by that is is uh, I think you talk about this in your space horror book, shameless plug, you know, after outer space, what are the next two areas on Earth that you can kind of capture the sense of isolation, the sense of, you know, aliens come in, but you're cut off from everyone, and that's underwater, which we did a podcast on the movie, yes, Underwater. Yes, another shameless plug. <laughs> that, that's a great movie. Are are at Antarctica. Where, you know, like the thing, there's no one else around. It's you and the alien, you're stuck together. 
Um, or the Arctic, which yeah, doesn't the, seem to get get um, as much love, right. um, but it it is it's a great setting. It is a great it, setting. It, you you don't have the clutter of like an urban environment where you've got a lot of distractions. <laughs> it's very clear. It's very clean. Um, and it's a very focused environment. I, I remember, uh, oh snap, uh, taking, they say the island that they're crossing by in this, and I have to refind it, but I'm not going to fight. But, you know, I put it in Google Maps, and I looked at it, and, you know, wikipedia it, and it's it's way up there. Uh, oh, snap, I wish I could refind the island. Oh, well. But, it, I mean, you know, part of it is, you know, able to go into Google Maps, put that up there, like, yeah, you're far away from everything. Um, and it adds, you know, to that isolation and adds to an alienness of it because, yeah, the, you don't go to the North Pole. Yeah, there's islands and icebreakers, ice and everywhere, but it's not accessible. It is, for all purposes, a very alien world. Like when you play Minecraft and you come across the ice ocean and there's ice spires everywhere. It's pretty creepy. Uh, that's what I see this as. I'm always afraid I'm going to fall through the ice when you get to those type of sections. Um... I did actually look up because of the space horror book and how the ship's name usually has some sort of um, relevance to the story. So I did look up um, Ortelius, mm -hmm. and um, there was a couple of references. So the first one being Abraham Ortelius, who is the creator of the first modern atlas. So he was a cartographer, ge uh, uh, geographist. That's not a word. But you guys know what I mean. We're going with it. We're going with it. Um, the second reference is to an M.V. Ortelius, which is an ice-strengthened polar expedition. It's a small cruise ship mm -hmm. um, that does go into the Arctic. It takes tours up there. So um, it totally you know, fit within the idea of the, the story. Um I really liked Marcus, uh, kind of, you know, again, for all the things that we've already talked about. And I think it really works well that he is, you know, he is an average person. He's just going about his job. Yeah, um, this is a, a gig for him. He, I, yeah. mean, I, I mean, the opening passages when the guy's asking, you want to be something part of Bigger Than You? And he's kind of like, that's what I get by playing. I mean, for all the purposes, this is, despite it being a military operation, could care less. He's just there to provide entertainment and do what he does best. And, and it's, you know, you are your job. Uh, that's a very <laughs> Dungeon Siege quote there. I didn't mean to go there. But, you know, and he's good at it, too. Yeah, yeah. It actually made me think of, like, a lot of the disaster films that see, like the Titanic and things like that, where, you know, you're you're there for something else, and then suddenly you're you're... You know, you're flung into this apocalyptic um, situation. Titanic and Sidon Adventure. Yeah, those were two that I that I actually thought about. I, I've never seen the Titanic film, but isn't there even a scene where like the band is playing as the the ship's mm -hmm. going out? Yeah, the band kept playing. Uh, you know, n not a horror movie, but I'll just throw this out there. If anyone has never seen the movie Legend of 1900, watch that film. There, in the middle of the movie. There's a dueling jazz uh, piano scene between Tim Roth and, uh, oh man, I forgot his name. The guy who invented, uh, you know, jazz. Uh, it's, it's a fantastic scene where they just 
combat duel each other on the piano. <laughs> um, I think of that a little bit of, you know, cruise ship musicians here. Or, uh, or look it up on YouTube. Yeah. I'm sure that scene's, that particular scene is there. Yeah, Marcus, very grounded character. He's the skeptic. He's the, uh, uh, not necessarily, I guess he's skeptic enough, but, you know, he's... Uh, our, our our average doe that we can launch onto. He's got he's got his thoughts of how the universe operates, and you know and I'll be honest. I'm, I'm sad that you know he, he dies at the end, because uh, uh, at the end th th this movie that not this movie this text does not have a happy ending. It it has a double not happy ending. One that the Enigma signal is definitely broadcasting now. So just like Independence Day or something, something bad's about to come to Earth. And as a side note, I think that's cool because there's, I think the other thing that's kind of hard to capture in stories is that idea that something big is going on, you know, mm -hmm. um, that something, uh, the, there's a little rush aspect to it, that something apocalyptic is in the air. It's that in the air feeling that, especially when you're trying to show and not tell, it's one thing to tell and say, yeah, the world's going to end in a couple days and people are freaking out. It's another kind of to show it with subtlety. And when I think the story does it. And two, the other bad ending is you got this boat, there's Shoggoths oozing out all the speakers and everything. And your, your choices are get assimilated into them, Blob 88 style, or you jump to your death into the hypothermic water. Uh, that's the preferable death, I suppose. And um, Yeah, because uh, there are military people, you know, lining around because I think kind of climatic. The. Shoggoths are like in the pool and you see all these eyeballs and the, you know, the military shooting at the people that have been assimilated. And so it's like, um, and unfortunately, poor Ricky, yeah. God rest his soul, gets assimilated because he was looking for something bigger than himself. Oh, that's the artist guy who can actually see colors as uh, music and stuff. That's the other guy, right? Uh, Ricky the drummer. Oh, Ricky the drummer. I'm sorry. Yeah. Th yeah, there's a third character we haven't really talked about, and that's the Joe, Joe the artist who, who, who uh, out of all the artists out there that are, you know, hired to kind of transcribe what's going on there, um, he just so happens to be in the, the ballroom where uh, Marcus and his band are playing, and Marcus's amp and stuff picks up the Enigma signal, and because this other character can see sound as color, he's up there and he's going, "What the?" Heck? Yeah, he's doodling the the entire time. Yeah. So, and that's I think it's a kind of a cool concept. I you know things like uh, synthesia or whatever it's called, chromosynthesia as well. I'm butchering them. You know, those are things that we... It's hard for us to, to wrap our heads around. The, the idea, like... Uh, I'm kind of side-railing here this because I don't know how to articulate it, but the idea, like, our eyes only have so many, like, rods and cones mm -hmm. that if we had an extra set or something, we would see colors uh, that we couldn't even phantom um, out there. And that those colors exist. You know, I'm looking at you and I see you as you, but... You know, if I had an extra set of rods and cones, you would look even more colorful or something like that. And how, how do you, how do you, it's like describing colors to a blind person. Uh, how do you describe colors that don't exist to the human eye to a human? And here's this character who has this attribute where he can see sound as colors and he happens to see some grotesquery monsters coming out. That's cool. That is very cool and novel. Yeah. Yeah, um, I also was thinking back to, you know, just uh, even 
people that don't have enough of those so they have a color blindness and, oh, yeah. and how that that works too so now there's for the, the story overall is it's is so simple you know expedition to the north pole to to uh to basically investigate an alien structure but it's all these small nuances that elevated up that you know uh, elevated above just a normal story that the characters the the uh, what they do you know the the picking up their signal the guy that can see color uh, I don't know it's just there's a whole bunch of nice nuances that Wynn puts in here a spin on the classic Lovecraftian tropes too I think elevate the story better than a lot of other kind of modern day Lovecraftian stories we've read and I think it gets even better because I like this story, but I loved our next story that we're going to talk about. So on that note, uh, we're going to take a short musical in intermission, and then we'll be back to talk about Tracking the Black Book. Welcome back. Let's uh, get it going with Tracking the Black Book. Eric and Peter are two Northeastern conjurers who investigate old tomes and grimoires. Right at the onset of the 2003 Iraq invasion, the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity occurs for Eric to buy the Necronomicon. After much convincing of Peter, who cashes out some of his stocks that were intended to help pay his son's college, they buy the book. Buyer's remorse immediately sets in for Peter as he watches the FedEx tracking from Egypt to the States. Something bad happens and the plane has to land in Cyprus. And then another incident happens in Paris. Then the package arrives stateside. The courier obli ob obliviously leaving a trail of terror in his wake at each stop he makes. Despite heavy flooding, FedEx is a tenacious company. Have you not seen the movie Castaway? and the Necronomicon arrives at Peter's home. Peter attempts to burn the book, which only makes it stronger and unleashes an invisible monster in his flooded basement. Eric and Peter venture down to combat the assailant. Eric gets eaten alive by the dimensional shifting critter. Peter only saves the day at the last minute by shoving the Necronomicon Ex Mortis, Book of the Dead, into a lead box. All right, Michelle. General impressions of this awesome story. <laughs> well, you've already framed uh, how my response should go, but um, I did like the story quite a bit. Um, I really enjoyed the inclusion of buying such a dangerous book <laughs> on probably eBay. And yeah, even the end, he's like, a bad eBay feedback. <laughs> yeah, uh, as he tries to sell the, the book. Um, but... Yeah, that and following the tracking, haven't we all followed tracking of a particular package that we're anxious to get? Um, even if, you know, for Peter, he had buy buyer's remorse. Um, so I did find that really quite fun. And then uh, when just ramps up the action when the book arrives at Peter's house. What about you? So, 
yeah, I want to play off that because that's that's probably one of the two most important aspects of the story is tracking. But yeah, the story rules. Uh, to me, it makes the Necronomicon scary and intimidating again. Uh, instead of an overused uh, trope in mythos fiction, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but just kind of like our previous story where it takes a trope, it really turns it on its head and turns it some inventive. But yes, let, let's talk about... As as the title of the short story says, tracking, um, the, the story takes place in 2003, so right before PayPal and e-commerce really takes off. I was actually curious. I went back and looked at my old Amazon account. And like The first time I ever ordered from Amazon was 2005. So this is still kind of early, you know, pre-social uh, media internet. Uh, I remember even before that, it was kind of difficult uh, buying things, but... but uh, here we go. This guy has bought a copy of the Necronomicon online. And to me, I think it resonates in our pandemic world because, you know, we're not going out as much to buy stuff. And so a lot of people's lives really revolve around ordering uh, not just luxury goods, but necessities through Amazon and the huge uptick in like ordering from like Grubhub and Uber Eats. And our lives are way more contingent on doing this. So, you know, we, we, it's now kind of a part of our daily life to watch the tracking. Is, is my life necessity thing going to arrive on time? Is it going to be stolen off my porch by our terrible neighbors? Is the box going to arrive as if it was played by a football player with holes all in it and everything? Um, but is it going to be delayed? Is it going to be returned? And, you know, the funny thing about all this is, you know, again, this is all stuff that we order day-to-day -day from books to food that, you know, we need or would like to have. And here's the Necronomicon, the last thing in the world we should be getting our hands on. And it is tenacious enough <laughs> to go through airplane downings and all this other stuff to arrive safely. And I'm like... Man, I wish some of my Amazon orders were that tenacious. Don't even get me started. <laughs> yeah, Michelle's had a, a little rotten luck lately on that stuff. But it just it you know I, I just I, I don't know if this story was written during or pre-pandemic. I think in the uh, end of the book, uh, Wind says when all these things were written and originally published. But I don't know. It just feels like it takes on an extra weight in our pandemic way more e-shopping centric world the the horrors and all the stuff associated with it and just how you know we are reliant on tracking to make sure things get from a to b even more so especially when it's the necronomicon <laughs> well and again like in uh the enigma signal you know when really taps into our societal you know Proclivities, I guess, in the fact that, you know, we all order, we, you know, if from Amazon to Chewy to wherever. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, we've all can, can relate to mm -hmm. the experiences of the tracking, waiting for whatever item, um, you know, possibly, you know, buying stuff that not not me personally, but, you know, buying a book that may be, you know, the anarchist cookbook or something that you shouldn't have a hold of, you know, and um, it's just, again, I like how he plays with, with things that are everyday type of activities that anybody that's reading the story can relate to. 
the further that it's like the idea you and I we watch our tracking oh can it get here oh can we get here and it's turned on its head here of oh please don't come here please don't come here <laughs> and that's scary and I think that ties into I think the second most important kind of trope that's played here is the Necronomicon itself and the Necronomicon is actually barely in the story. It only arrives in the story's third act when literally the FedEx guy hands the package off. Everything else is occurring, I'm going to say off-page, off-screen. Um, you know, we've read many stories of the Necronomicon that, to, to me, it loses a little bit of its luster um, because it's it's always there. It's always a gimme. It seems like there's dozens of Necronomicons out there, and if anyone needs to get a copy, pick it up at your local library. You know, uh, it just it seems it's overused, and that's fine, I suppose. I mean, it's kind of an important text to have in your Lovecraftian stories, but the more often people use it, the more often, to me, it loses its mystery, its powerfulness, its uniqueness. And this story goes to the, I, I think, rejuvenates that. And what I mean by that is the Necronomicon is actually doing stuff without it even being there. You know, the idea that here's this plane coming in and the Necronomicon on this plane has caused it to go down or caused the freeway, caused the flooding to ramp up, causing the dogs to go crazy. And it's not even in the person's possession yet. It's just the power of it even existing and to me, that's scary. It's it, it makes me think of like it's a very boogeyman quality. Or if you think of the movie Usual Suspects, the Kaiser Soze, you know, he's affecting the story, and he's not. Well, he is technically there. He's uh, <laughs> uh, the act. I forget his name all of a sudden. Kevin Spacey. He's Kevin Spacey, but we don't know that. You Spoiler. Know, <laughs> hope you've seen it. <clears throat> I hope you saw Usual Suspects thirty years ago, everyone. Also, Darth Vader is Luke's dad. Um, <laughs> wow, you just gone for all sorts of spoils. I, today. I am. <laughs> um, but you know the idea that this unseen, unknowable character is like influencing the narrative of the story and having consequences, and he doesn't quote unquote exist. The Necronomicon is doing the same thing here. It's it's in a FedEx box halfway across the world, but it's doing stuff just by existing. And to me, that ramps up the the scariness factor of it. This truly is a dangerous book. It's a one-of-a-kind dangerous book that no one should really have their paws on. And what's a way to show that? And in this case, show it without even showing it. Yeah, you know, as as you were describing it, I was thinking of two things. One, um, a lot of the EC comics, when there was a mummy involved, so you you know that I've, I've studied mummies and comics. In a lot of the 50s, you know, there was a curse associated with the mummy. So even though the mummy may not be doing anything, there's there's a evil emanating and that is causing, you know, bad things to happen. Even though, you know, the mummy's not doing anything, nobody's interacting with it, but it's, it's still creating havoc. Um, there's even a story that says that there was a, uh, a mummy... Uh, and a, its sarcophagus on um, the Titanic, mm -hmm. and that—that's the reason why the Titanic went down, not the iceberg, the mummy. <laughs> um, but then I'm also on the flip side of that. We are now in a day and age where we don't know if we walk out our door, and we go to the grocery store, if somebody doesn't come into that grocery store, unbeknownst to us, and starts 
doing bad things. Mm -hmm. They're upset at Albertsons because they didn't have their produce or whatever. Um, and then suddenly you're you're a part of that situation. Um, and I and I was thinking about all the people that are like on the the airlines, mm -hmm. um, and suddenly their flight they have to divert to Cyprus and things like that. Um, and just you know all the innocents all the innocent people that are impacted and yet Peter's sitting there and, and you know is ramping up the the stress level for him because he's able to make those connections and that's what I think is also really neat about this story is that again all these a lot of things are happening off screen but there's when creates such a huge impact off screen and the stress level because of that other layer of uh, impact that this book is having. It, you know, he's drawn, overall, kind of like the first story, this one even more so, this story really has a simple premise. You can't get simpler than waiting for a FedEx package. But I don't want to say it's milked, that's the wrong word, but I'm going to go with it anyway. But it's milked to big effect in this. Um, and I think that's funny that, again, that, that Wynn is able to take something small make it grander and also flipping it on its head the in this case the necronomicon behaving i think the way it should in a very simple premise of <laughs> ordering it from ebay and of course who can order the necronomicon of all things through ebay well it makes sense in this story because he takes the time to say hey there's this guy over in egypt that's getting looted because the war is about to come on he's now trying to offload it you know connecting those kind of dots he sets up the dominoes for for this to happen and it's kind of groovy yeah he does a night <coughs> when does such a, a great job really of effectively you know creating that establishing shot of how the story is going to go um and you know both both stories are actually very visual and like you were saying um off mic nick was the fact that you know these stories could very well easily translate into you know, short movies or something like that. And it would be really neat to see some of these and just how they're, how they're done uh, visually in a film format would be fantastic. I, I want to point out, though, that this, this story, even though it's tragic because it ends with Eric, who gets eaten by an invisible monster. I want to say that, that that seems pretty cool. You know, he gets swallowed up into nothingness and the baby powder falls and it illuminates the monster just for a minute, enough for... Uh, Peter to go ah, but and to be in therapy for <laughs> for many years after. I I, I hear you, uh, but you know the weird thing is that's actually the most desirable outcome of this story, if you think about it. Because a couple pages earlier, the Necronomicon arrives, and Peter is like, "I'm gonna burn this book," and he tries to burn it, and all it does is it activates the powers and stuff, and makes things worse. But you know, they're able to, you know, seal it away in a lead box, so now it's not doing anything. If you think to the very beginning of the story, the uh, guy over in Egypt who has a copy of the Necronomicon, in his email, you know, because he's talking about he's getting raided by insects and dogs and all the stuff, you know, the power of the Necronomicon is attracting misfortune. He's like, guys, uh, seriously, I will sell this book to you for 5000 bucks, or I'm going to burn it. Yeah, what, what, what would well, have happened if he burned it? If he would have burned because he doesn't know what he's dealing with. Eric and Peter know what they're kind of dealing with, and they're kind of prepared for it. They've got their ceremonial daggers. They've got their lead-lined book. Um, box. Box to put the book in. 
and that's the the best outcome. The worst outcome is the guy actually burns the book at the beginning of the story and it unleashes who Lord knows what over at Iraq and Egypt at the start of the war. It probably would have been a very apocalyptic <laughs> end game right there. So it is kind of sad and tragic that, you know, Peter, he's now estranged from his family. He's lost his best friend. Uh, you see, he's crazy because he saw a dimensional monster. But in a way, he saved the world in doing so. That all this misfortune that, at the end of the day, the Necronomicon is still better off in his possession, sealed away in that lead box, than ramping around where it used to be. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a... A tragic end, uh, you know, a downer end, uh, but it's also a funny end because the last few lines are like, you know, no positive feedback on this, you know, eBay transaction. So it's it's some gallows humor, I guess, in a weird sort of way. Back to one more thing on the tracking. There's one other thing that this makes me think of. Uh, the, the, again, the idea of you're sitting there, you're watching your FedEx tracking, and you're like, please don't come, please don't come. It makes me think of Alien. You know, they're watching the the motion tracking their, their vices as the aliens creep up on them, and it's very, like, heightened and scary. Dallas, don't go down there! He's right on top of you! Ah! And so on. That That's what this feels like, also, is a throwback to kind of Alien and Aliens, that, you know, you're powerless to stop it. You're sitting there at your computer terminal, He's sitting there on his laptop, watching the beep, 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 burr. That's what's going on in both these stories, and it's nail-biting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he does create a lot of, a lot of tension and high stress um, as you're reading, and manages to hit horror, a bit of humor, um, a lot of sadness, because both of these stories have, you know, a fair amount of sadness to them because of the characters you know for being short stories and yet we really do become invested in these characters we like them. yeah you know they're likable characters and we don't you know we're sad for what has happened to them uh when he did the reveal of the monster down in the basement i honestly thought about a much older film um and that's when uh, the monster is revealed in Forbidden Planet yeah. with the electricity. And how you just get a bare outline and, and you know, you see it just for a moment. But you, you're like, oh shit, that's huge. And oh my god, I don't think I ever want to see that again. So, I know I have seen that scene in other movies where the monster's invisible and they, they throw a powder in the air and it's briefly lit. And I was just drawing a blank. Uh, I, I for, for some odd reason, uh, Forbidden Planet just eluded me. The only example I could think of was Ghost, where Patrick Swayze is illuminated by water trickling on his face. And I'm like, Nick, that's probably a terrible example to bring up on a podcast. So, yeah, yeah, no, uh, Forbidden Planet with the id being coming through the barrier. Yeah, to total, that, wait, wait way better example well and and again you know uh when takes an everyday item um and something that is just innocuous in in a person's home and it's like oh powder yes and I, you know i haven't seen all of uh the supernatural uh episodes but i would almost imagine there there may be something like that in one of those episodes you said home and i think that kind of brings up my final point mm-hmm 
that this is a domestic cosmic horror story. And usually when we read cosmic horror, it takes place elsewhere. The cabin in the woods, the library, another dimension, on a boat in the Arctic. Mm -hmm. It's usually not at your house. And when it is at your house, the typically the, the main character is a bachelor. So like something like... um. Uh, Dreams of the Witch House, you know, takes place kind of in his apartment, but he's a bachelor. Um, and the same thing uh, with uh, uh, Dagon, you know, he's uh, he's in his apartment writing the memoirs and stuff. So it's not often that, you know, you actually have like a nuclear family on the homestead that the horror is occurring at. And so I think it ramps up the stakes a little bit. It isn't just this Necronomicon's now in my position, bad things are going to happen. As we see in the story, the Necronomicon is now in my possession. My doggy's at risk, my kid is at risk, and my wife is at risk. And I, that amps up the stakes a little bit more, and it's not a thing I see a lot of in Lovecraftian stories, which usually pins it on one person in some other locale. Yeah, or very contained yeah. impact, uh, like, you know, a best friend mm -hmm. or something, you know, usually a guy. Um, so, yeah, I do like how he plays with the tropes. Um, I'm actually uh, anxious to read the rest of the stories um, in the book. It's It's got a beautiful cover, and I think we would not be doing um, the book justice if we didn't comment on the cover. It's really well done. I don't remember who the artist is, I'm, but maybe you can find it real quick. Let me see. Uh, da, 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 da. thought it was a... Cover and interior art by M. Wayne Miller. And yes, that there, there was effort that went into this hardback. It's got a s slip cover, uh, one of those embedded ribbons. Uh, and yeah, the, the effort on the publishing physical aspect matches the stories we've read so far. It's 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 been a treat, definitely. <laughs> For different, I mean, I don't want to sound disparaging. A lot of people release their short story collections or their collection of mythos writing, and they're fine. They're fun. Uh, you know, we read some eh, ones. Uh, Silence of Erica's on. Uh, <laughs> no, this one has been a, a a gem so far for sure. Yeah, and uh, folks, if you're not familiar with Weird House Press, go take a look. They do a lot of of uh, Lovecraftian-type books. I just think they do really nice releases and great books. They've also got Donald Dyson, uh, who writes for, or they at least publish his books, and he's a fantastic writer, too. And I, I'm really hoping that we'll get to discuss one of his stories or one of his books uh, down the road. But um, yeah, so I'm gonna plug, uh, take a look at Weird House um, as well. And of course, in the notes, we'll link to um, uh, Douglas Wynn's book. Um, so definitely have a look, it, we highly yeah. recommend. Yeah, this, this has been a fun podcast episode. Both stories from the same author, uh, similar themes, and both uh, subversive to what we normally read. So definitely a, a treat for sure. And I would say, again, on that note, <laughs> we're going to take another uh, musical in uh, intermission. Uh, we'll be back to talk about uh, thank yous and upcoming events. So uh, stick around. We'll be right back.
welcome back. This episode's bumper is provided courtesy of Angela Yukuro-Smith. We had the pleasure of interviewing Angela this past February, who went on to be honored twice at the Bram Stoker Awards this year, uh, one for a short nonfiction essay titled Horror Writers, Architects of Hope from the Siren's Call, and also for the poetry collection which she co-authored titled Tortured Willows, Bent, Bowed, Unbroken. We wish Angela continued success. Uh, so, for upcoming events, instead of releasing a transmissions episode at the end of the month, we're going to release a fragments episode instead, which will be discussing a pre-code uh, sci-fi horror fantasy film. Uh, the reason for this kind of switch up for this month is um, because we're going to be guests on a panel about uh, this uh, genre of films at the upcoming CocoCon being held in Phoenix the first weekend of September. Uh, so we got to brush up on some older movies. So why not talk about one of those on our podcast? So if you're attending, seek us out since we'll be participating in a few panels. And then in um, September, we'll be resuming our normal schedule with our interviews and whatnot. But hey, we'll have a link to the CocoCon convention show notes about it. And so look there. Yeah. Uh, for social media, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, and of course you can always email us as hplovecast at gmail.com. That's our preferred way to contact us. Please don't send us any FedEx packages containing ancient evil grimoires. Yes, they will be refused. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and feel free to explore our archives. Consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books we have either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. Or if you feel like donating a dollar or two, we have a coffee account. We have Dutch Brothers here in uh, Phoenix, and we do love our coffee. <laughs> so uh, for that note, uh, for that we do have a link uh, provided in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening. <laughs>